welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Joe, for getting together with me. And uh, I met you at Victory Club, or maybe it was a Valentine's banquet where me and my wife and your and your wife was there, and that's when I first kind of got talking with you. So you teach at um, what's the name yeah. of the school again? So I'm I teach at the Ferguson Florissant School District here in St. Louis. I'm a high school biology teacher. Okay. This is uh, I shouldn't make it sound like I've been doing this for a long time because this is my first year teaching. Uh, I had kind of a mid. Uh, a career shift recently, mm-hmm. and that's what directed me into teaching. And I was blessed to find this really unique teaching position. So it's part of the public school district, but it's it's not in a school. It's it's offsite at this nature area called Little Creek Nature Area, and it's basically a hundred acre forest which serves as the classroom, and we take kids out into the forest and teach them about nature. So it's a, it's a really unique. Uh, teaching position, and I, it, it's been a blast the first eight months so far. Cool. What did you do before this? So, a, a little bit of background. I, uh, my undergrad was in biology education, so I was trained to be a biology teacher, but I didn't actually see myself doing that long term. I, I like education. I like teaching but I wanted the more um, professional experience, the career-based experience. So I went into research, science research. I got, uh, I spent the next, well, it would be nine years in uh, post-bachelor education. So I did my master's degree at the University of West Florida, and then I went on to get my PhD at Cornell University, which is kind of like a mini-career in and of itself, just doing the postgraduate work. So that's that was essentially my career for the last nine years. I then came to St. Louis and worked for a year in a lab, a medical lab at the Washington University School of Medicine. And we, continuing along my same lines of research, which is molecular biology and genetics. So I did that for a year, and that's when I realized, I mean, I kind of knew this going into it, and I probably shouldn't have pursued that route. Uh, it's it's kind of an all-encompassing career. They, if you if you really want to excel at it, you've got to sacrifice a lot. Uh, I thought too much as far as family is concerned, mm-hmm. and so I decided to change paths a little bit and step out of the the mad dash um, of academia. Mm-hmm. Which brought me then to, what am I going to do next? And I started looking around in the area for teaching positions. I had a lot of trouble finding anything um, initially because I have no teaching background. <laughs> I have my, any teaching background I have is at the college level, and high schoolers or high schools aren't really looking for. The, the, you have to be pretty specifically trained to deal with younger <laughs> students and high school students. But someone gave me a chance, and I got in at Little Creek, and I'm really grateful for that because it's been a great experience. So growing up, um, 
what kind of school were you in, like for high school and grade school? Yeah, I was uh, straight up homeschooled, okay. the whole whole nine yards. So that was the the first time I like ever stepped in public school was my first day of teacher training, and that was kind of an experience. Okay. So, how did you get interested in biology? I think I've always been interested in the uh, outdoors and nature, uh, especially as a as a kid. So biology was the natural fit for that. When I started looking into how do I make a career out of science, but specifically natural sciences, uh, I, I like most science in general, but the natural science in particular. And biology is really what fits that bill. Okay. So... It was just a natural um, progression from my childhood interests into the bigger world of careers and what do I want to do with my life. So that's what brought me to biology. So as we get along in the conversation, we might talk about like your fundamental beliefs and Christian beliefs and biblical beliefs and things like that. But just at this point, um, but from what I understand, you don't hold to like the traditional view of evolution and so forth. Is that correct? The, I don't hold to the secular view of evolution. Okay. Um, That would be a fair statement. So, um, in, in all of your education and everything, was that much of a, you know, conflict or, you know, stuff like that? Or, was it not really an issue at all as you were going through everything? So it, my undergrad was at a Christian school, so it was no, no issue there. Okay. Then my master's degree was at a secular university. And my first interview I ever had with my advisor, mm-hmm. who wasn't my advisor at the time, <clears throat> but she became my advisor, we, uh, this, this topic came up, which is not what you actually want to come up or bring up first mm-hmm. time you're... you're introducing yourself to a scientist she was she's from taiwan um and she really gave me a chance uh so even after this conversation she really respected that i had uh and was willing to speak out my beliefs and so she took me into her lab Uh, she worked with drosophila which is fruit flies and mm-hmm. we did fruit fly genetics. I was there for three years. So that's when it, it first came up. Hmm. And then, not surprisingly, uh, she was, she knew I held these beliefs then my whole, the whole time I was there. So she required that I take the principles of evolution course that the university offered. Mm-hmm. And that's not a typical graduate requirement. But uh, they, my committee asked that I take this course. And so, of course, I did, and I obliged them. And um, <clears throat> it, was, it was fine. It was fun. It was interesting and nothing that you wouldn't expect from a course on evolution. Mm-hmm. And then it, at my final defense, so this was after three years in the grad program, you do your thesis defense, and you, you write a thesis, you do your... A public presentation of the defense and then you meet with your committee privately which is yourself your principal advisor and then a couple other uh, people from the department biology teachers mm-hmm. so the the four of us are sitting in there and one of them 
who was the department chair, actually, looked at me and said, now, Joel, suppose you go to a university and they, they ask you to teach evolution. What would you do about this? And so I kind of just looked around and I said, I have no problems with biological evolution. And they all kind of looked at each other and signed off on my, on my degree. So, uh, and I use that wording very precisely. Uh, and I would st- still say that same thing today. I have no problems with biological evolution. Yeah, maybe we'll get into what that means, but I'll save that for later. Um, I do have problems with the Darwinian evolution and the goo to you idea. Mm-hmm. And in general, I mean, you, that's still... Uh, you're, you're not given a voice if, if you say you have criticisms of that or problems of it or if you're skeptical of it. It's still heavily looked down on. Um, but this UWF, they were, and my advisor was gracious enough to allow me to hold those views and, and continue on. Now, at Cornell University, at that point, when I got into my PhD program, it's just, it's just a given. It doesn't even come up. Everyone here is hardcore evolution. You know, they, they, they just expect that of you. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, there was absolutely no issues uh, at that point. Because it just never came up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now I took. Um, let's see. What was this? I was. My focus in during my PhD was developmental biology. So we study how does a single cell develop into a full-blown organism with trillions of cells and hundreds of cell types. And I took development and evolution, which is this very uh, trendy field these days um, called Evo Devo. So it's evolutionary biology along with developmental biology and I, I think it, it's important for people to kind of engulf themselves in the controversy for some people uh, if it's if it's your cup of tea um, don't don't avoid it you know take those classes and uh, enjoy it there's there's usually 75% really good material that everyone can agree on. It's just pure science. Mm-hmm. And then once you get into the interpretation of that is 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 where we start to part. But you know, certainly take the 75% of good material uh, and enjoy it. That's what I would recommend. So when you're talking about um, biological evolution, is it kind of like the difference between, like I hear sometimes macroevolution and microevolution, is that kind of what the distinguish how you're distinguishing it? Yeah, I, I don't use those terms. Uh, I'll briefly explain why. I don't want to get too much into the weeds here. Okay. <laughs> but it, it's a question a lot of people have. So the problem is um, microevolution we define as change within a species. Mm-hmm. Macroevolution is change between species, like a, a new species. Mm-hmm. And I actually agree with both of those. Okay. So microevolution is uh, slight, minute adaptations that you would see between, you know, a gray squirrel and a, a red squirrel. Actually, those are different species. So I'm already into macro. There. Okay. Um, so, so it's the difference between you and I, two humans, okay, but, but right. we're different. Right. So, so those are microevolutionary differences. Or dog breeds. Dog breeds. There okay. you go. But then, there are tons of um, 
species, which I believe are all part of the original created kind uh, that God would have created, and they diverged by means of evolutionary processes over over time. Uh, for instance, the the dog wolf coyote. They're all Canis is their genus. Then they have uh, different. I don't know all their species names. Canis lupus uh, and Canis familiaris for the dog. The dog wolf and coyote. They all have likely a common ancestor, mm-hmm. even though they're all different species. Okay. So that's macroevolution, mm-hmm. and I accept that. Okay. So that's why I don't use those terms because I actually believe both of those happen. I see. Um, we do have new species that form, mm-hmm. and uh, so I lump all that into biological evolution, mm-hmm. change over time. Okay. And I fully accept it. I don't think there's any reason to take issue with biological evolution as change over time. Okay. The the question or the difference is I believe change is happening from a state of more information to a state of less information. So a, you couldn't take a household dog and breed it back to a wolf. <clears throat> but you could go the other, because information has been lost. But you could go the other direction and take a wolf and breed out to your household dogs. Um, so to me, it's all about the direction of the change. So I believe God created things perfect after the fall uh, change was introduced, and this was a necessary introduction, so organisms could now adapt to their imperfect environments. And as a result, we have hundreds and thousands and millions of species that have resulted from that. Each of them, a loss of information over time. So you you were raised in a Christian home. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure: I'm straight up born, bred Christian. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, I've benefited immensely from that. <clears throat> but of course, it would be... Uh, I, I suffer from the um, in inward bias, you know, where you just grew up in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was born in, in this type of setting and grew up with, <clears throat> with these beliefs. Uh, it is what it is. Did you have a conversion experience, or, or as far back as you can remember, you were into God and the Bible and everything? Well, it would be accurate to say as far back as I can remember, I, I was into those. <clears throat> now, I believe I had a, what you would call a conversion experience, <clears throat> uh, this is where we get into this fuzzy area. <clears throat> At least I think it's a fuzzy area. Some people uh, would take issue with that. But especially for kids that, that are saved at a young age, I, I had a moment where I said a prayer. Uh, and so I, I put that stake in the ground as this was the landmark. This is when, when I got saved. Mm-hmm. It was when I was about five years old. Um, I met with my dad, and, and he walked me through the gospel plan of salvation, and, and that's when I got saved. So that's where I put my stake in the ground, because I certainly believed at that point, but it's, it's, it's possible. I, I even believed before that mm-hmm. in childlike faith, uh, and just was not, le- not fully aware 
of what I believed. Okay. So what tradition of Christianity do you identify with most, or how would you uh, describe it? I was raised, uh, I, I like to put it this way, I'm a Baptist by birth, but a Christian by choice. So I was born and my, my father was a Baptist preacher, an okay. uh, independent fundamental uh, Baptist preacher. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in that, and I would then say, that's I'm a Baptist by birth. Okay. But then at some point, you have to personalize your your beliefs. This is, I think, what you're talking about with that conversion mm-hmm. or salvation moment. Mm-hmm. So, And I had to personally trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I think, uh, although I, I'm still a Baptist on, on paper, I think that's more of a, uh, how would you put it? Uh, that's kind of the the way we decorate the house, the house itself is Christianity, the core fundamentals of Christianity, which are truly the important things. Mm-hmm. Have you read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis? I sure have. Okay. So I guess the his point is that mere, like those fundamental things that uh, classify us as Christian and unite us together. In that. So you're saying... You're you're Baptist, but um, you're you've chosen to be. You said Christian by choice, like you've chosen. The, is that what you're saying? Is that's the most important thing to you, the, the Christian part? Yeah, I feel like the my Baptist traditions is something I inherited. It's something I grew up with. It's, it's something that it was just my way of life, and that's why I still go to Baptist churches. I'm familiar with that. I mm-hmm. that's. That's people I get along with. But the core beliefs, the things that I chose to believe on my own, would be those fundamentals of of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I'll fight over. You know, I'm not... I don't fight over pre-trib, post-trib, uh, and a lot of things that, that uh, are taught and believed in, in many Baptist churches. Uh, but then again, I'm from an independent Baptist background, so you can't find two independent Baptist churches that are that are completely alike. Mm-hmm. There are differences all over the place. So it's just, a, to me, in my opinion, it becomes a waste of time to squabble over those small differences. Is there anything um, that you look to to know how to consider others as, like, in as a part of that mere Christianity or not. For example, the Apostles' Creed is one example. That's why I've kind of been thinking lately. But that does include just about everybody, you know, who's an Orthodox Christian. Or is there um, something else? For example, um, you know, Catholics, Lutherans, you know, people who have a lot of different beliefs, but may st- still hold to those same fundamentals of the Trinity and Jesus, you know, dying for our sins and his resurrection and his return and 
things like that. Like, what do you have any thoughts about what those fundamental beliefs are for you? So, I, I wouldn't um, depart far from the what was what came out during the fundamentalist movement. And off the top of my head, I'm, I might not remember what those five fundamentals are, but it's some of the ones you just mentioned: the the deity of Christ, the uh, vicarious atonement of Christ, the uh, inspiration of the scriptures, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and I do. And there's there's a fifth one which I don't recall. Maybe. Uh, so yeah, I would consider those fundamental. But I'd I'd even back it up a little bit and. I kind of look at it like like this the two fundamentals before I can really even I be a friend with someone uh, this is kind of like a fellowship qualification uh, number one they have to be or you have to believe there is a God and that the Bible is God's communication to man uh now, of course, I'll be friendly to anyone, even if they don't don't believe those. But to be, I just feel like for me to really get along with someone, uh, you have to have some shared beliefs, and those would be the core two fundamentals. Hmm. And then I would layer on top of that the next set, which would be because you have to draw a line in the sand, otherwise it turns into this mess where everyone's now now a christian just because they they throw out the name god and they open the bible once in a while or have own a bible and and that certainly couldn't be the case uh it, at least in my opinion so you got to draw a line somewhere one of the I, the big lines in the sand that i use is the deity of christ i feel like this is a uh key fundamental belief that not only is important for what I believe the gospel is is all about, but differentiates and starts to separate what I would call the sheep from the goats, whether whether you um, believe in the deity of Christ or not. Uh, And and we could go on, and I I wouldn't I don't want to overcomplicate it. This has already already been well thought out by others, and this is where I go back to those five fundamentals of the faith: uh, the inspiration of the Scripture, the um, deity of Christ being one of those, and uh, the salvation by grace through faith. Um, so, does that sort of get to that question? Yeah, I didn't realize that fundamentals. Fundamentalism had like five um, mm-hmm. fundamentals, but I just recently we were watching a YouTube channel, and there's a YouTube channel, Ryan Reeves, who does church history. He does a really good job at it, and we looked at a, a video on fundamentalism and talked about the five fundamentals that listed them. And I forgot what they are, too. <laughs> but they weren't complete, like... Um, it wasn't. I forgot what it was missing. Um, they don't have the Trinity, okay, in there. Yeah, uh, which comes up big in a lot of the early church creeds and. Right. I'm okay with that. 
as long as the deity of Christ isn't there. That's sort of like the Trinity in uh, a, a different sort of way. Right. That seems pretty important. Um, and I think Orthodox, you know, Orthodox <clears throat> people believe in the deity. The people who wouldn't would be those who you wouldn't consider Orthodox, like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons. Well, Mormons kind of would, but um, but and then there would be like very liberal Christians who are into higher criticism and would they may not believe in the miracles and the deity of Christ and so forth. You know. What reason or reasons do you have for confidence in the Christian faith that you're following? the right thing rather than atheism or Buddhism or something other? So, <clears throat> this is probably a question a lot of people, young people, including myself, who grow up in a Christian home. At some point, you're going to ask the question, well, if I grew up in uh, a Muslim home, would I be equally convinced right now of Islam or if I grew up in a Jehovah's Witness home would I be equally convinced right now that that Jehovah's Witnesses had the the one true way uh, that's a, that's a really good question and, and so of course there's no way to, to answer that directly <clears throat> but then I just go back to what are the reasons like you're asking for for my beliefs and are, are they reasonable are they somehow different from from the reasons I would be able to offer if I was in one of these other other groups. So I think one of the, the key components of the Bible uh, is that it is it actually attempts to deal with real-world events. This is highly risky if you're trying to uh, write a spiritual book. Like, consider the Book of Mormons and, and the other books that, that they have. They talk about a, a whole new history that occurs in the New World that is uh, unrecorded in any other secular history. So they've set themselves up for uh, a very risky situation <clears throat> um, that one day, well, none of this has been proven, and so they just chalk it off as, well, you know, it's, it's all lost, lost to the past. And that's what they must say. They have no choice because their book has attempted to deal with real-world events, but then there hasn't been any proof of that to follow it up. So what, what's really neat about the Bible is uh, it deals with real-world events, real people, in real time, in real places. For instance, the, the city of Jericho, which is apparently the oldest city uh, on earth. Hmm according to archaeologists. And, and granted, they, the secular archaeologists, their dates are going to differ from what we believe is, as, from what I believe, as a biblical perspective. But they'll fully admit, you know, when, when they excavate Jericho, they find that uh, it had two sets of walls. They find that it was burned. Um, and these events are described in the Bible. And so when the Bible makes claims about the real world, that's a, a risky thing for it to do. But then those claims are backed up and they, they match with what, what we see in 
archaeology and those those pursuits. This is really important from uh, just an evidential perspective that these events that are being described are real. It doesn't prove that it's real, and I think that's important. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't just because you uh, you find evidence of the nation of Israel inhabiting that land, the Israelites inhabiting that land, it doesn't mean that they crossed the Red Sea miraculously. Mm-hmm. And so th- this brings us to that, that junction of faith. Evidence can only lead you so far. I think there is sufficient evidence out there to uh, reasonably conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. There's sufficient evidence out there to reasonably conclude that there was a King David that really reigned in Israel uh, several thousand years ago. And there's sufficient evidence out there to prove or to reasonably reasonably conclude that the Israelites uh, migrated from Egypt and conquered the land of Israel, land of Canaan. So this is all reasonable conclusions, but you could never completely prove it. And you certainly couldn't prove that uh, God miraculously provided for the Jews uh, with manna in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And so this is where it's going to ultimately come down to your faith choice. <clears throat> so uh, evidence can only take you so far, and at some point you'll have to choose to believe in the uh, supernatural, the what, what cannot be proven by evidence. Um, things like the miracles, but most importantly things like, yeah, there really is an afterlife. This life is not the end. There's more to it. And that the God of everything really did become a man and really did miraculously raise from the dead to prove that he could uh, forever save us from our sins. Those can only be taken by faith. So that the Bible Mm -hmm. has at least some underpinnings historically or is something that gives you confidence in the whole the Christian faith. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. What kind of influences have you had in your life? I mean like things that have really impacted you, people, books, or events. <clears throat> so I've had a lot hmm. During my high school years, so late, late high school, I, I had two really good friends, um, Nathan Tyler and Kevin Myers. They were older than me, and they were really godly young men, uh, memorized huge portions of scripture. I think they had a really defining influence on my life, because it, it was right at that time when uh, when when you were when I was around them, it was like the cool thing to do was to see how much uh, Bible you could memorize and quote. And the cool thing to do was to see how quickly you could read through the Bible. And those were the cool things to do uh, during that critical time in my my life hmm. when I could have really really been distracted by a lot of other things. And so we we were good friends. We worked together uh, for four or five years and I really owe them a lot beyond that I have a great a really great wife which we've been married now for ten years this uh, this May 
and great family, great parents, great siblings. I have a lot to be thankful for. I, uh, I would attribute it to the people that have been in my life more than anything else. Uh, when, What's been going on in your life lately? What have you been thinking about learning? What's God doing in your life? Mm, that's, that's a good question. So if I'm completely f- frank, I do feel, uh, I feel like I've, the last couple years have been a little tumultuous for us. So we, I guess it was 2018 is when I graduated with my PhD from Cornell. And we're looking around trying to figure out what, what, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? These, these big questions of life, which I thought I would have been done with by that point. And instead, uh, I remember I was driving to, I had an interview at MIT for a postdoc position. And it was late at night driving towards Boston from upstate New York. And it was dark. Uh, we just had a big snowstorm, so it was hard to drive on the road because the snow, like the banks, the snow banks were right up along the, the interstate. So I'm like squinting, trying to stay on the road. And I just remember uh, really crying out, like not knowing what, what in the world I needed to do with my life. And just saying, like, come on, God, you, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. Couldn't you make it a little more clear to me? Uh, it was a little bit of a frustration. Like, I, I actually am want to do what you want me to do but what is that and i wish i wish that solved all the problems but it doesn't i mean this is just the reality of 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 life it's working through problems and making mistakes and so i went on to do this postdoc at in st louis uh and in the first year it was just really unsettling like this doesn't seem like the right thing to do now i'm in into teaching which is a new thing. It's a new adjustment. I feel like for the first time in the last couple of years, our life is starting to settle down. We've moved, I think, three, three or four times in the last two years. Uh, I feel like our life is starting to settle down. And so all that to say, it was this period of frustration, and I feel I'm a little bit still in it, spinning my wheels, trying to figure out exactly what, what God wants me to do. I feel like there's a lot of potential in the, there's a lot of need in the public school system. I haven't figured out how to uh, fill that need, but maybe that's uh, why God has me here. I'm still searching, trying to figure that out. Okay. You know, um, we had talked a little bit about biblical scholarship, professional biblical scholarship and things, and I uh, loan you that commentary on Genesis by John H. Walton. Have you continued looking at that? Is it something you're still looking at it, or are you kind of done? Uh, so I'm done with it for now. Okay. I, I did not. I actually have it with me. Okay. Um, uh, I I perused it to kind of see the, the main points that he was mm-hmm. getting across uh, about the interpretation of Genesis that 
that he was looking at, mainly the, the first chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and I like to, I definitely like hearing what other people have to think about and what different perspectives are out there. Mm-hmm. And so he, he was a good read. I appreciated that the, the main reason I'm skeptical of, of scholarship is because uh, they, I, I think they overemphasize their own uh, intellect over God's word most of the time. And I didn't think, I didn't feel like he did that. He seemed to be willing to submit to God's word even if it didn't make sense at, at a certain point. He, he said as much that at some, some points the Bible's clear and we just have to take it for its word. I can agree with anyone who, who takes that type of position. Uh, I'm more worried about the people who are saying, look, if, if it doesn't make sense to me, then something's wrong with the Bible, not with me. That's, that's what right. I'm worried about. I guess that's what you would refer to as like higher criticism. Yeah. And um... So the problem is scholars automatically move that direction. Because in scholarship, this is the same thing in the science world. The, in order to win, in order to survive, it's all about novelty. So you, you have to come up with something new in the academic world. No one wants to hear you rehashing the same old stuff. This is all when you write your thesis or your dissertation. It's got to be about something new. So you have to have some new perspective. And that doesn't bode well uh, for a Bible which is 4,000 years old, uh, 2,000 years almost in its current state. And if, if you're a biblical scholar that is really pressed to find some new insight in there, uh, you're gonna, the tendency is to, I think, develop extra-biblical and sometimes unbiblical ideas. But some new insight has been a blessing to us, for example, the Reformation, Martin Luther's insight. Um, would you call that uh, kind of new or a corrective for the times or something along those lines? Yeah, yeah the latter. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I don't think it was like a, a new realization uh, or interpretation of the scripture. I think it was more of a social revolution. That, that he sparked than a, um, a biblical, new biblical insight. And, yeah, I, I would just leave it there. Well, here's something that is not like, you know, biblical scholarship that I've been reading about or something, but just thinking about, and to me it seems kind of like new insight for me, just to see what you think about it. So we normally think of the gospel as Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again. And there's good reason for that. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's exactly how Paul puts it. He says, you know, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel, which I delivered to you and so forth, that Jesus died. And he gives a little formula, like it's people have said, that's a little creed or something, kind of going through the resurrection, um, resurrection uh, account in um, a particular form that 
Paul received. And it kind of gives credence to the resurrection being very, a very early belief because Paul letter, Paul's letters are very early, generally thought of as having been written before the gospel accounts and so forth. But when I think of the gospel and I read the gospel accounts, the emphasis seems to be on the kingdom of God. Like Jesus says the word gospel in the book of Matthew uh, a few times, a handful of times, half dozen or but it's always in a phrase, or almost always in a phrase. There might be one exception where he just mentions gospel. But it's always gospel of the kingdom of heaven, I think is how it's put in Matthew. So, And that's what Jesus was proclaiming. So he was a prophet. He went out preaching. And um, he said that the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's, it's arriving. It's right here. Um, repent and believe the good news, the gospel, which I think what he's referring to is what he just said, you know, the kingdom of God yeah. has come. And then when the uh, he spoke in parables, the point a lot of times was to illustrate something about the kingdom of God. And then when he sent people out, disciples, you know, in pairs, um, that's what he told them to go do, you know, go tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand or something along those lines. And then after his death and resurrection, he spends time with his disciples. And in the first chapter of Acts, it said that's what they were talking about. He was telling them about the kingdom of God. So that seems to be like such a big emphasis. And from that perspective, you would think, well, what's the gospel, the good news? What's the, that the kingdom of God has arrived? And it seems like if that was more of an emphasis when we say when we talk about well what is the good news it's like god's kingdom has arrived and we can live in it we should live like right now as we're citizens of the kingdom that that would be maybe a better way to re- talk about the gospel now does jesus's death for our sins come into play there oh of course you know that's how we're accepted in and so forth but if we just talk about the gospel as being jesus died for your sins so you can be forgiven then it's like it's missing so much it a person could take that and say great well i'm all for that and then go on live their life and it's like well of course i'll take that because why not um but it there's nothing in it for you know about your life you know you're saved into something and if the emphasis about what is the good news is more about God's kingdom has arrived we can be a part of it and that seems to be so that's a little bit like something I've been thinking about lately and could be like an example of in my own life and thinking like a new insight or something along those lines. But what are so, your thoughts? Do uh, why do you think then Paul didn't use that language in his missionary work? We'll call it that, or did he? Okay. When he was writing epistles to the church, many times they were already established, so he would remind them of the benefit that they have in Christ in, in some of the epistles 
and then it was an exhortation. So this is how you ought to live. So it was like an encouraging thing. Some of it was like instruction about particular problems they were having. Philippians seems to be almost all encouraging them to live in a certain way, but it's in light of the example that Jesus has given to us. Paul doesn't use the word kingdom a whole lot. He does a little bit, like I think it's in maybe Romans 10 or some or somewhere he's talking about, well, the kingdom of God is not about what you eat and what you drink. It's about righteousness and the Holy Spirit. And I might have I might not be getting that exactly right. So he does mention the kingdom. He mentions the church a lot, um, like a, as being um, a spiritual, a new spiritual house um, built upon the uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets and and things like that. So referring to the church could be another way of referring to the kingdom. So just thinking out loud here. Uh, I would my my first thought would be that Jesus there does seem to be a very different message between the what we call the gospels and Jesus and then what shows up in the epistles particularly uh the Pauline epistles I think for the church today the Pauline epistles are like the textbook of of how how the church operates <clears throat> And I look at the Gospels as more of a historical account. And so that was Jesus' message to those Jews at that time. In that light, at least, I I guess the reason he would use kingdom a lot, because that is certainly the, the theme that you cannot miss when you're reading, those, reading the Gospels. I guess it would be because of his audience, he... They are looking for a kingdom. They were primed to be looking for a king and a kingdom. That's language that they would have been familiar with. But when Paul moves to the Gentiles, that would have been foreign language to them. That wouldn't have meant anything to them. That's my first thoughts as to why the difference exists. Okay. But it is, I think it is, we maybe skirt too lightly over the words of Christ sometimes in the in the gospels cuz at face value sometimes they seem to really contradict some of our uh uh doctrinal beliefs uh and so some people's solution to this is to completely exclude the the gospel teachings as uh doctrinal and such but and to focus only on the Pauline, Pauline epistles, probably there's a mistake in doing that as well. Although I do emphasize Pauline epistles myself as for our, our that was God's word to the Gentiles, which I am a Gentile. But there's certainly easier, like Paul was more of a Greek thinker, which our uh, heritage, I guess you would say, are, you know, we're influenced by Greek thinking and so forth, and everything is pretty structured. I used to like, well, I still like Paul's letters, but they used to be my emphasis a whole lot too, because it's just simple. I mean, it's just straightforward. This is what you should do. You know, this is what Jesus did for us, and this is what you should do, and he just lays it out. 
the gospel accounts seem to be more like things to meditate on. They're not quite so simple, but like the Sermon on the, the Mount, he doesn't come right out and say explicitly that so much that this is all about trusting in in God. This is a relationship. These are commandments, and this is how you ought to live. But you, when you just run over it over and over again, you see a lot of faith and you know, and resting in God and that relationship with God. The parables, the, the narrative accounts, they're kind of meditative. I think there's, I think Matthew is laid out in a sense for people to learn from it. It's really structured. The Sermon on the Mount, you know together the genealogy i've heard it said you know it's structured that way to make it easy to memorize i think seven 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 or fourteen 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 something like that but um so i guess is there uh, any fundamental difference in the gospel according to jesus and the gospel according to to paul I'm. The answer is probably no, but uh, what's your thought there? I don't think there's two Gospels. I think the emphasis in the Gospel accounts is on the kingdom. And I think with Paul... It's a different type of writing... He's giving instruction to people who are already in the kingdom. So he's telling them, he's reminding them of what they have as Christians, as people being in the kingdom. And he's telling them, he's telling them how to live that. So is there two different gospels? No, I don't think so. But I think it's two different writings. Um, So that's my. Uh, do you? I've I've heard some people speculate, and I think it's an interesting idea that the God's kingdom was supposed to uh, roll in around the time of Christ, and that the age we live in now is kind of this parenthetical break because the Jewish nation rejected Christ. That's, and it put the seventieth week of Daniel on hold, and all these things. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, again, I will leave those for bigger, better minds than mine. I, uh, I think Christianity loses its power when it becomes too theoretical and less practical. So, I think it's fun to, uh, you know, take time, especially times like this, to talk about these things. But if they ever become our, our focus, then we've actually lost the the key component of Christianity. So what's the practical for you? Yeah. So the practical is is living it out, being the hands and feet of, of Christ, mm-hmm. which I am by no means a great example of. It's but that should at least be what we want to be. Mm-hmm. Be the hands and feet of Christ. Cuz if you think about it, if 
when was the gospel just on fire and growing the most? Arguably, you know, that first century. And they didn't have technology that we have today. They didn't have a virtual church that we can thankfully have right now in a time like the coronavirus. They didn't have social media to get the gospel out there. They didn't have YouTube for their YouTube videos. Uh, they, so they didn't have technology. They didn't even have a canon of scripture, uh, the New Testament, mm-hmm. in right. that first century. They had a couple of uh, letters from this crazy guy, Paul, sending sending to them. They and And yet, it just grew like wildfire, and it makes you wonder. So, so what was it that just made it explode? The things that they had going for them was persecution. I mean, that that just fanned the flame of the growth of the, and and their behavior or the way that they face that persecution. So, uh, I think those that's very practical. You know, that's how how do you deal with the world around you and how you deal with that is probably going to be the that's the most powerful expression of Christianity maybe (laughs) I'm just spitballing here but Mm -hmm. yeah I think that sums up what I'm trying to say though so the fundamentals for you are are, um, or the practical aspect I think is how you were referring to it is um is living it out, being the hands and feet, the body of Christ in the world. And the source of strength for that, like, where, where is the source of strength for that? So I like the way Paul put it, <clears throat> Paul being my hero. Uh, he said, if we live in the Spirit, I take that to mean when we're saved, the Spirit of God indwells in us. That's living in the Spirit. So that's one aspect of our Christian life, is being saved, having the Spirit dwelling in us. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So that is the practical side of it, the walking in the Spirit. And, and Paul says this right after outlining the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace. So that's uh, the power to do this, would can only come from outside of ourselves and it would be the the spirit or let's not let's let's demysticize it it's god living in us you know working through us Um, in fact to bring this in a full circle i feel like this is one of the main differences between the christian worldview and a secular evolutionary worldview so the the golden rule in the evolutionary, or I shouldn't say in the secular worldview, is um, survival of the fittest, or selfishness is the highest virtue in evolution. Um, hmm. Only the best, the strongest, or the, the strong enough survive. So it is all about passing on your own genes. Everything in the world around us, every instinct we have, every instinct animals have, it is all about passing on their genes purely selfish motivation contrast it with with the christian worldview and this is why christianity is really hard because at its core it's supposed to be unselfish uh i guess the highest virtue is would be love which is uh 
greater love hath no man than this, and that he lay down his life for his friend. So Jesus Christ coming to this world, the highest demonstration of love and self-sacrifice, selflessness. I think this is the fundamental contrast between the biblical worldview and a secular worldview. Worth, worth mentioning here. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So, where does that leave us? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about how to respond to that? No. Okay. No, uh, this well is dry. Well, it leaves us with a, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of hope and direction. I mean, um, Christian faith, um, there is that, um, self-sacrificing aspect of it, um, which, you know, gets down to the core of what it's all about, but it's because we're entrusting our selves into the hands of the ultimate being in the universe who is a father to his people and has that fatherly love and that we can entrust ourselves into his hands and um, and follow Jesus and it'll come out all right on the other end because um, Jesus' resurrection is an example of um, that same thing entrusting himself into the hands of the Father and we can uh, follow that example. So I guess that's where it leaves us. Yeah. Yeah. I I do believe that we would see wildfire growth of um, people turning to God, entering the kingdom, if you will, Mm -hmm. Uh, if if we would have that same um, outliving that those first century Christians did. And this is really hard to do, let's be honest. I mean, I feel like I fail on a daily basis on uh, being those hands and feet of Christ that we're supposed to be. What's hard because there, what's kind of confusing because there's, um, you know, personal things we need to do. We have our to-do list, paying bills, um, keeping the house up, Mm -hmm. um, attending to different things and so forth. And, and we need to do that because it's not doing others so much good if we just let ourselves um, go down and then become a charity case, you know. But I don't know. It's just kind of confusing sometimes and just how to live things out. Um, sometimes it's not so confusing. Sometimes it's just a matter of obedience or not. But Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I I think that highlights that frustration that I mentioned earlier on in our, our talk here. Uh, I, I kind of know what I need to be doing, but there are so many other things competing for for our attention and time. And at the end of the day, I know, or I believe, let me put it that way, I believe most of that doesn't matter in, in eternity, yet it's really hard to take take my eyes off of it and to really focus on something that does matter for eternity. So do you have any thoughts about what just what you mean as far as what really matters for eternity 
compared to some things that don't? So, classic example. Right now we're on spring break, uh, but our school is also closed for basically the month of April. We'll be doing online classes. And it's really easy for me to get uh, super involved in my work. We're making some virtual hikes to supplement the the at-home education of the kids. Since they can't be out in the woods, we're taking them on virtual hikes to get the show them what's happening this time of year. So much is happening this time of year because uh, uh, it's the transition from dormancy to spring. Hmm. We just passed the spring equinox. So looking around here, we're outside, and you can just see tons of uh, plants leafing out. Unfortunately, these plants are all an invasive species called honeysuckle, (laughs) and they shouldn't be here. But, yeah, so so much is happening right now. So we take them on virtual hikes. And it is really easy to spend lots and lots and lots and lots of time doing it because it's, number one, fun. It's, it's, there's, I think there's, in the back of our minds, there's always this effort to uh, try to climb to the next rung on the ladder mm-hmm. as well. Hmm. And those, I probably don't need to... Uh, get quite as caught up into that stuff and focus more. I sometimes wonder what if we focus that same amount of attention on something like uh, building the kingdom, um, trying to in, uh, make build relationships with people and be those hands and feet of, of Christ. Hmm. If we put that same effort into something like that, maybe we would see uh, a more interest, more results, more uh, growth, of of the kingdom. Well, thanks, Joel. It's been really good to talk with you, and I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been a treat. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life. Mm-hmm.